What's going on, family? Welcome back to another week and another episode of Unscripted. I'm your host, Akeem Haynes. Before I introduce this week's special guest, do us a huge favor. Head on over to Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review of the podcast. It would truly go a long way in moving the podcast forward. Now, with that being said, let's get into this week's episode and my special guest. My guest this week is Gabriel Richards, a.k.a. Cabby. Cabby is a television sports personality. Originally from Toronto, Cabby knew from an early age that he wanted to do something special. What started out as just playing games and hanging around and recording videos with his friends eventually sparked his interest for production and television. After high school, Cabby attended Ryerson University where he studied radio and television for three years before he left the program completely and started an internship at The Score in 2001. This is where his break started to show. In 2001, he pitched an idea of interviewing people walking around the city of Toronto, making them laugh, or using props to get a reaction. That sparked the path to working with athletes, interviewing them on his show called Cabby on the Street. Since then, Cabby has interviewed guests such as Kobe Bryant, Mike Tyson, Stephen Curry, Aaron Rodgers, Derek Jeter, Will Smith, Will Ferrell, Wolverine, Hugh Jackman, Alexander Ovechkin, and many, many more. In this episode, we touch on his journey to date, how he finds balance, his favorite interviews, and so much more. So without further ado, enjoy this week's episode of Unscripted with Cabral Richards, a.k.a. Cabby. This is an episode that I truly believe you'll enjoy. He's inspiring. He's funny. He has some great stories. But most importantly, what I always respected about him was he never changed who he was and his unorthodox approach to interviews. Enjoy the episode. Man, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to this one, bro, because, man, um, when I came to Canada in 98, you know, from um, from from, uh, from Jamaica. So originally um, Jamaican born through and through. And so when I came to Canada, man, you know, there was three shows that I watched faithfully. One, Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> uh, two. Uh, WWE, nice. you know, and three cabbie on the street. Man. Oh, thanks, you know, man. So, thanks, bro. Thanks. You know, man. You know, I, 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 I don't think that you get enough credit for the amount of bot with the body of work that you've done, but also, man, the consistency and how you did it. So, I'm looking forward to this, man. I have a bunch of things that I want to jump into, cabbie, sure. but I want to, I want to start here, man. You know, last year was an interesting year to say the least, and, and I'm being generous with that word. Um, but in a profession, man, where 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 you are touching the people, you're talking to the people, you're interacting with the people, man. Yeah. How was that last year for you? But also from a mental standpoint, man. How 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 did you navigate and get through that? Because we all took it in some toll, and you know we all hurt in some toll as well too. Walk me through a little bit about last year, man, because it must have been tough some days, man, not to mention some of the things that happened along the way as well. You know, it's interesting that you that you say that because I, I'm kind of an independent person. So I found comfort in my work, and I was very fortunate that Bleacher Report continued its operations, even though there were no sports. So we had to lean a little bit more. And, I, and I'm a person that lives to work, not works to live. So mm. as we were trying a bunch of different content experiences to capture some of the attention span that, that you know, uh, that is in this economy of people that create content, you know, the attention spans are shorter, but there was a captive audience because everybody was sitting at home. People were gaming, yep. people were watching friggin' Tiger King on Netflix. <laughs> you know, people were watching um, other people game, you know. So it was a challenge to keep my mind active and try to find ways with the team to 
come up with ways to engage the audience in betting. And that's the portfolio I work with at Bleacher Report. But like, even in um, interviews, it was a, it was certainly a transition moving to like a Zoom world and, you know, salute to anybody who ever heard of Zoom pre February of 2020, because I'd never heard of this platform. Now <laughs> it's part of, it's ubiquitous. It's part of the culture, Zoom. Right? Yeah. And, and also salute to everybody who bought in on Zoom, you know, before it exploded, the stock price exploded. All those rich folks who got richer, you know, yeah. salute to you. Um, so uh, as far as the mentals go, even though we were told to stay, there were like some stay at home orders. I still went outside because I needed to, I needed the sun to touch my skin. I needed like 30 minutes or an hour just to get outside, just to breathe in the air, just so you have a little bit of a, of a break from your current situation. And I was very fortunate being in Las Vegas the the restrictions weren't as stringent as other places in the United States or other places in the world. Could you imagine living in China or in Korea yeah. where they just did straight up lockdown? Like you cannot leave. Like you were yeah. there. Like that would have been a claustrophobic way tougher on the mentals. One thing that wifey and I did was we would take uh, our little date nights would be like to target, like literally like, all right, let's go buy books or <laughs> And then she was like, we should read every night for an hour. And I, I said, yes, because I was spending, I don't know, seven hours on my phone and just getting dumber with each passing second. So mm -hmm. there was some solace in just reading tactile, physical books and turning pages with my fingers because I'm from that era where books are like still had a lot of value and, and importance. Uh, and that's that's uh, that's kind of how I how I dealt with that time. It was, it sucked just having to do everything virtually. However, it became a way of life and we had, you know, every business has adapted, not every business, but many businesses have adapted to work from home era and actually kind of enjoyed it in a weird way. Man, do you think that in a strange way you were kind of prepared to handle the situation, I guess the transition of things a little better because, you know, from watching your shows, a bunch of it seemed like it was improv, man. And you've always been good at that. So do you think like in a, in a in maybe in a subconscious way that the transition for you wasn't as tough as it was for some other people? The way I worked before at TSN, when I primarily conducted interviews, I was in a small bubble. Like it was like myself, my producer, a cameraman, <clears throat> excuse me. And then I'd work with a host of editors, but I like, even at TSN, I wouldn't see Kate Burness or Jay Onright or James Duffy. I wouldn't see them very often because I was in one edge, one area of the campus where the editing suites are. And that's where I primarily mm. do all my work. So I was kind of secluded anyway. And then when I came to Las Vegas, my wife, she stayed in Canada because she has a business there and everything. So I was, I was already by myself but I took a leap of faith because I went, I came to the United States to elevate my career and continue pursuing a dream. So I knew like, Hey, this is part of the cost and I'm just going to lean into it because I'm not here like for fun and games. I want to have fun, but I'm here to grow my career. And that's the primary reason that I'm here. So even though I live in Las Vegas and it is literally sin city where I can literally order whatever vice that I want through my phone <laughs> to my front door. I do yeah, yeah. show up on a bicycle <laughs> with a girl or a bicycle with a baggie <laughs> of something, madness. you know, uh, and I don't indulge because I'm just like, I'm just focused on, on the bigger picture. So always like having that mindset was comforting because I was just primarily focused on, on elevating. And um, so that's how I, that's what helped me get through it. Man, let's go back to the beginning journey of sure. things, man, because I've, I've always really been infatuated with um, the process of how a person got to where they are. You know, I think so many times people see you at the pinnacle and they see you at the top of the top, but it wasn't always like that. Right. So let's go back to Cambridge, Ontario. All right. Let's yes. go back there. Yeah. Um, I read somewhere where you said at a very young age when, you know, you were playing with friends, you know, when your parents were home out of town, um, something sparked your eye for media. What, what, what happened during that age that something kind of came into your head and said, you know what, man, I want to, 
I'm a little interested in this. It was probably my influences, which were primarily television. And I was heavily influenced by In Living Color, heavily influenced by Will Smith, heavily influenced by Martin. And I didn't know the direct route to get on television, but I absorbed so much of their humor that like my stage was the classroom. And I got in a lot of trouble because I just kept disrupting class because I was like, Hey, look at me, look at me. I I'm, I'm dying for your attention. Mm. So us making home videos, like one dude in the crew had a video camera. So uh, in the summer when my parents would be off driving my brothers around or baseball tournaments all around Southwestern Ontario, um, mostly like GTA and Southwest, from either like from Windsor all the way to like, I don't know. I don't know if quite as far as Peterborough, but maybe the Durham region, Oshawa, uh, Ajax, Ontario, Pickering covering, you know, a, a solid 500 kilometers, you know, I was just left to my own devices and I wanted to entertain. I knew that from a, a early age. Cause I got to, I got to be in a play, Akeem, and I was the lead in this play where I was like singing terribly, but I was singing and it <laughs> was in French. Deal, it was a big deal. It was a big deal because at the end of the, of the play, and this is in the eighties, I got to kiss the girl. Like I, I kissed her hand, oh, but like man. they let us kiss in like when I was nine, I was like, this is the <laughs> best feeling in the world. <laughs> you know, just cause we were watching all these movies, like the princess bride or, yeah. you know, back to the future or, even the Cosby show, which was also very formative. Like you're just looking at these big screen romances. Like Theo had a bunch of different girlfriends. Like, Oh, that'd be so cool to be Theo. Theo was a smooth cat, man. He He was. was. And then, and then Will was like Theo on HGH in both cool and then performance. Cause Will was a, a basketball player. And obviously we knew about his music too, but like that. And then Will, like all of the baddest actresses in Hollywood, black actresses, made cameos with maybe, maybe Holly Berry didn't, but like, like so many others, like the most gorgeous women that ever made it in Hollywood were on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air at a time where television was the most important to me. Anyway, I'm getting away from it. Okay. So I got to perform and, uh, um, and then once, once I was at school, you know, we got to work on these, like these school assemblies and I got to um, be a part of like little skits that we would either shoot or I I would perform in on stage. And like, that felt like, okay, this is a training ground for later on, like to get on TV later on. So that's where, that was the genesis of us doing these little terrible home videos in the summertime uh, because we were all into Conan O'Brien and in living color and every Jim Carrey movie, we could recite the lines Um and, and, you know, and Martin, you know, I, I, I stole so much from Martin uh, growing up, Martin Lawrence. Man, I think I always hear this a lot with, uh, with certain people, right? They always say, you know, it was at this point that I knew that I wanted to do. And you said you knew that you this could be an avenue to get onto TV later. But was there a moment, maybe it was a specific grade or an age where you said, you know what? I think this is a path that I can literally see myself taking. Was there a time that was like that for you? It may have been in grade eight. We did speeches at school and, and you'd have to obviously, you know, go speak in front of your, your peers. And uh, I fashioned myself as like the funny guy. And I wasn't funny. I was just obnoxious. But I wrote, <laughs> I wrote, uh, I got to compete in like a speech contest and I got to, you know, win for my school and then go compete in the district. And uh, I didn't really get that far in the district, but I still, you know, there's like 30 kids from, you know, 12 elementary schools or 15 elementary schools. Maybe it's 30 kids from 15 elementary schools. Um, and you go do your speech, perform your speech in front of a bunch of strangers and stuff. And getting laughs from strangers was like, a dopamine hit like I'd never experienced. So I think mm. that was the moment. And in grade, grade eight, what was my, like, I remember I opened with like, I just stole like a Big Daddy Kane 
verse and I just changed the words around a little bit, obviously made it G-rated. And then I think my speech was about being 13. It was so generic, bro. It was like, just no imagination. I just opened with like hip hop and then, hey, being 13. And then like, you know, jokes about laundry and trying to talk to girls and then zits and then like ended with like a camping story or something stupid. But it was, I think that was the moment. And then, um, uh, yeah, I think that was the moment. Cause then, you know, and then there was another pivotal moment in grade 10 performing at the Christmas assembly at, in Cambridge, Ontario, where I went to high school, where getting laughs in front of the school congregation, you know, five or 600 kids, you know, in the auditorium, two shows that was, that was, I felt like euphoria. So I'm like, I like this, you know, it fed my ego and then it just fed my desire to want to perform more and, and make people feel good. So I think that's, uh, I think those were the two moments. Subconsciously it's grade eight with the speeches, but I think more, I was more aware of it in grade 10. So (laughs) over time, did your jokes, and performance like elevate right because in the in the eighth grade man you know <laughs> eighth grade humor is you know it's kind of low of course you know you laugh about anything it's all physical yeah. humor and fart <laughs> jokes basically but in the 10th grade right the audience came a little bigger man do you remember that performance what 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 was the opening line in what in the grade 10 yeah Oh, I don't remember. I was part of a small ensemble. There were five of us and my friend Maria Knight wrote the script. It was was a Christmas story. And I was the kid opening the, like just excited for Christmas. And my friend, Chad Lehman, white dude played my mom and like a big, like not an Afro wig, but just a big stupid wig. So like the physical, the, the, you know, juxtaposing him and I on stage and him wearing, you know, uh, an overcoat or whatever. I mean, there was humor there. I can't remember the opening line though, man. Um, but as far as like your humor having to ref- be refined, the older you get, uh, and certainly it has to change as the audience changes. It was elevated because of who I was trying to joke around with. And that's namely professional mm-hmm. athletes. So there weren't, there was one guy named, um, Oh my gosh, he was at his name is Kenny Main. He did like little sketches on football Sundays on ESPN's pregame show. And it was called yeah. the main event. But he has a very dry sense of humor. And I am sort of this animated performer. So our energies were different, but it was similar kind of thing. So that's where it really changed because the audience was now seeing athletes be funny where you generally would not see them be funny. Like you might, once a year, there might be an athlete on Saturday Night Live. There might, you might be a Wayne Gretzky. There might be a Derek Jeter. Peyton Manning knocked it out of the park. And then obviously Dwayne Johnson is the GOAT of all athletes that have appeared. And even Michael Jordan did a spot, but Dwayne Johnson is the GOAT. Other than an athlete's Nike commercial where like Bo Jackson is like, he's playing the guitar and he's, you know, he's swimming and he's playing tennis because Bo knows everything. Bo, or it's, um, um, you know, Michael Jordan is, I don't know if he was ever really seen as funny. Spike Lee's character, Mars Blackman, was funny. But maybe like Space Jam made us laugh because we were really young when we saw it. So, But yeah. other than their commercials, people didn't see athletes as funny. They were just super talented um, performers the times that they would provide humor for the audience are bloopers. Someone crashing into some fans and spilling a beer or some baseball player reaching for a baseball, going over the, going over the wall and his, his pants come down and you see his boxers or someone gets hit in the family jewels, like things like that, but not as far as thing, not as far as like lines or moments that would come out of the mouths or their reactions to somebody else. Cause humor, so much of it is in the reaction of the other person. You could have a funny line, but, when you're on screen with someone else, their the reaction is usually where the comedic gold is. Hmm. Man, so you're 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 kind of noticing all that during the time in high school, right? And trying to give this limelight to athletes in a different no, way, no, no, man. No, 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 that, that was later, bro. That was later when I actually started cabbie on the street at the score at the in high school i was just trying to li- honestly man, I was just trying to make girls laugh and like trying to make girls <laughs> like me. So, like, hey, do you want to go see 
you know, Wesley Snipes, if you want to go see The Fan, or do you want to go see uh, Jurassic Park, Jurassic World, or uh, Jennifer Lopez in uh, Money Train, or, you know, like, I'm just trying yeah. to, I'm just trying to get, or whatever Jim Carrey's, The Mask, or Ace Ventura, you know. Uh, so that was, I, did, I didn't have this awareness in high school. It was much later once I was like, I was out of Ryerson and I was in my first job at the score. And then I first got to like interview athletes and ask them off the wall questions and see how they reacted. That's when I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I definitely want to lean into their personalities and try to have funny moments with guys in the NBA and the NHL. Those are the first athletes I was exposed to. Man, before we transition to Ryerson, man, this this just came to mind, man. In a in a field where you are in front of athletes all the time, interviewing them, talking to them, man. Were you nice in high school at any sport, no, man? man? Were no. you hoping? Were you no, absolutely horrendous, bro? I've, I've always been a chubby, not chubby. I've always been a fat bastard. This the sports <laughs> that I played best were football, and like I made an all star team in Kitchener Waterloo, the Kitchener Waterloo region. Um, and then I played baseball, but I was like. I was on like one select team and I, I don't even know if we really traveled that much one random summer. My brothers were much better athletes, but I was like, my gifts were all verbal and, and mm -hmm. interpersonal relationships. I had zero athletic, I have flat feet. I have a big stomach, a stupid round face. Like there was, I was so jealous of my friends, like much like you who are track athletes and you guys could just prance around a track, just, just doing your warmups, the high knees and a certain cadence of the way that you bounced around the field. And like the girls would be swooning over the track dudes, <laughs> you know, as you guys are just like, you guys were gazelles and peacocks. And my friend, Nigel, like Nigel would be able to talk, like talking, you know, this when you in high school and, and, and it's probably different now because so much conversation is over a phone, but we, getting up the courage to go talk to a girl from a different school or like approach a cluster of kids from a, that are complete strangers and you're, you're, you're facing ultimate rejection, but in the face of potential rejection, you're like, I need to go talk to this shorty with brown hair and brown eyes, or I need to talk to this sister, this, this mm -hmm. light skin ting from Blueville collegiate or <laughs> grand river collegiate. Be like, I need to know who that is. So yeah, man, that's hilarious, man. Because I'm so immature, bro. I have not uh, matured at all, and I'm in my 40s now, man, my dude. But I still remember finally those times getting wins. Because for guys like me who didn't get a lot of wins, those, I hold on to those uh, those wins from friggin' 20 years ago, like they were like they were little. Uh, they're better than participation ribbons, which I got. Uh, I have a whole drawer full of those. Man, it's it's uh it's funny because you know, I think um there are so many times where you know the the where confidence plays a big role in certain things, right? And I know for me, I was always a shy dude, man. I'll just always let let the sport do the talking for me. I never really said too much, man. How did you gain the confidence, man, to even not even to, to talk to these athletes yet, but at the beginning stages to get up in front of a crowd and start telling jokes or trying to make them laugh, man, because that's a, that's a lot of putting yourself out there. And public speaking is something that people fear in general, right? So where did that confidence generate for you early, man? You know, I used to record stand-up comedy performances. I used to record Caroline's Comedy Hour and I used to record Conan O'Brien and uh, Conan was like my dude. He was so funny. And he, I just marveled at how quick-witted he was. But Conan, since he was like the newest player into that space of, excuse me, late night television, he would often feature up-and-coming comedians. So I would record these random comedians. And for sure, I used to steal some of their jokes and write some of my own or try to write a different version of a joke that an actual comedian had written. Just, I, I didn't have that much fear as far as um, uh, speaking in front of people because I was just the class clown and I was always trying to either get like the teacher to laugh, which was always very tough because you're just disrupting the class or get the cute girls to laugh. 
And those were like, <clears throat> it's like getting a thousand likes on an Instagram post. Actually, I don't even know if it's the same. It's like having a new follower. When someone famous follows you on Instagram or Twitter, like that, like, whoa. Like mm. the first time when Kobe Bryant followed me on Twitter, I'll tell you, Akeem, I laid in bed for 45 minutes staring at my phone. <laughs> that's funny bro (laughs) um it was like and and i was like uh i didn't know how to respond or to respond it was like so Mm. uh and i i'd have to go back in my phone and look at the very first message that i sent him but it was like whoa it was like the most beautiful girl in high school saying hi to you or inviting you to like a party like you want me to like so anyway um when i was 17 i took the bus to toronto and i called some of my friends that i'm originally from toronto and i still had friendships we we moved from toronto to cambridge when i was 12 so yeah i called into like um there was a comedy club called the laugh resort open mic nights were tuesdays so I got on the Greyhound and I took the bus to Toronto and I got, I made it on the list and I performed for like six of my friends. I wrote jokes about the Blue Jays and jokes about probably, probably some bodily fluid jokes. Cause that was my <laughs> life at 17. Um, and it was probably terrible. It was, I'm sure it was terrible. I, I, I got sympathy laughs from my friends. I had some jokes about my name. My name is Cabral, but like my entire life, supply teachers have been saying my name incorrectly or just a lot of people might saying my name incorrectly. So I had one joke about like calling a girl's parents house and you know, Hey, can you tell them Cabral called who Cabral called who it's Cabral. And then, you know, the mom would be like, you know, honey, it's Kevin on the phone, like something stupid like that. Um, so I did, I did that twice when I was 17. And then once when I was at Ryerson, uh, when I was 18, but then like, I, I just, and I was really, in, I was really infatuated with stand-up comedy. Cause you're, you're all the way naked. You're standing on a stage in front yeah. of strangers and they're and with the expectation that you're going to make them laugh. Uh, so I, yeah. I, I realized early that I wasn't as funny as I thought I was, but I took those swings when I was young and, uh, and I, and, and it led to bigger things. Man, stand-up comedy is a hard ball game, man. I, I, even if I was funny like that, I don't think I could do it. That's just, that's a lot, man. That's a lot of putting yourself out there. You're probably not getting much back. You know, you'll know if you're not funny real quick, man. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the audience um, will let you know like immediately. I want to go to the transition from Ryerson into 2001 when you interned at the score. But I read something, man, that I found very interesting at Ryerson that I think, in my opinion, man, was kind of a good thing, right? I learned two things as I was reading up, man. One, um, you didn't finish school there. And and two, the teacher told you to take a semester off and then you tried to come back and you said, come back in the fall. And then you never came Correct. back. When you didn't come back, <laughs> why didn't you come back? Where did you go I from there? I got lazy, man. Not, not I think. I did. I was, um, it was actually the dean of the program. Dr. Bob was his name. I think it's Bob Gardner was his name. And then, yeah, I, um, it was in 2000. Oh, you know what? I actually got a role in a movie. I got a role in a, t- in a TV movie and we shot for six weeks. And then I just took two classes at night, but then I got, <clears throat> I felt like I was hot. Like, Oh, we just did this movie for like, I paid my rent for like eight months. I bought a new place. That's a big deal, yeah, man. A, you know, I think I made maybe it was a 20 or 30 grand. Um, and oh, that felt, in the year 2000, I felt like I, like I could buy a Honda Accord. Like I didn't, but I should have probably bought a car. Um, <laughs> and like Honda Accords were like desirable for dudes that are like 21 years old. Cause like, those are like the whips that someone's older brother had, or like, it was, I don't know, there's, there's some cachet about a Honda Accord and a Honda Civic. <laughs> um, and I, and that was the reason. So then I just. Um, and then in 2001, when I would have, when I would have gotten back to school, I, um, I was working at the score and that's when, that was the year that I pitched this idea to do a man on the street 
uh, and I was working at HMV and the score at the same time. So I just got into that grind. Um, but my creative extension was these streeter segments. And that's how I pursued continuing to do radio and television arts. So that's the, it was mostly just laziness, bro. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, I did get the movie, but I could have went after the movie. I could have tried to get on the second semester uh, to finish my fourth year, but I, I just never did. Man, when you pitched the idea, right, you said men on the street. So one, how did your name get in front of it? But also two, man, <laughs> what is the format moving to pitch something to someone right especially your own show your own segment because that that in itself can be a scary thing because i've heard so many so many stories of people working so hard on something and then going to pitch it to someone and they get rejected and they just never recover from that the pitch process was much different at the score because it was such a small channel and it wasn't I didn't have to face a room full of executives in a big conference room where I'm standing there with storyboards, the way um, producers or writers traditionally pitch television series. Or if you're some junior at an ad agency, you have an idea for a campaign for Twix or Gatorade or something like that. So it was just the boss. Uh, I said, hey, I have this idea for a streeter segment. He's like, okay. I'm like, um, can I go do it? He's like, well, go record one. Let me see what it looks like. Cool. I did it. <clears throat> He's like, this is okay. Record another one. So I, I did another one. Um, I don't know if this is ironic or not, but this is back in 2001. And I was asking people if, uh, asking people for their thoughts about the national anthem being played before sporting events. And half of the people didn't care. They're like, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't particularly need it. Now it's obviously been politicized because of Colin Kaepernick, but yeah. you know, 20 years ago, just randomly in the streets of Toronto, people could take it or leave it. And then at the end of the bit, I had people singing the national anthem and I just edited a bunch of clips of people singing the anthem um, and myself included. And I was singing to this baby in a stroller and the baby started to cry. So then my boss is like, oh, this is funny. <laughs> Um, so I'm like, can we, can I, can we start to air them? He's like, yeah. So Sunday nights on the score, which at that time was called headline sports, this five minute segment of some random dude would appear in the loop. And I'm just running around the streets of Toronto and just interviewing <laughs> random people about mascots and scoring records. And I don't know, just all kinds of silliness, but it found a bit of an audience and uh, people were into it. Man, I also read that it came on literally five minutes before midnight. Yeah, yeah, midnight. it was, yeah. 11.55, that's correct. 11.55 <laughs> on Sunday. So nobody saw it except for people on the West Coast or those late night owls that were just watching sports highlights. And then we would get emails. Hey, we like, uh, you know, I like this thing. Or who is this guy? And it just kind of grew from there. But people were into it. But you, it was, the feedback wasn't immediate. It was like emails or even people writing the station but it's a totally different time as far as getting viewer feedback. Because now you just know immediately on Twitter if they love you or hate you. So, man, well, first, I, mean, I had no idea that part of it, man. But, like, how long was it in between? Was it months, weeks, a year until it actually, until you felt like you got some good traction enough to get more time on the air? Mm. Well, once, once they started to air, it was a go, you know, it was, I worked for free for the first three months and then I got paid like a hundred bucks every time I delivered a segment. So a hundred bucks a week on top of my regular duties, which were writing um, scripts for the hosts at the score. Um, but I was like a hundred bucks, like, and, you know, this is fine for me. You know, I'm just, I live in a one bedroom. Here's the crazy thing. I lived in a one bedroom apartment at 40 Gerard street East with my roommate RT, who is now like a television director and executive producer, but the two of us lived in a one bedroom place, Akeem, two grown ass men. So we would flip every six <laughs> months. Someone slept on the couch and the futon. And then the other person got the bedroom and that's how we would. And we lived together for many years, you know, paying 800 bucks to a thousand bucks a month for rent. 
and just being young dudes chasing, you know, starting our careers. He started directing music videos and I was working over here in sports and we made it work. Yeah. Cabby, man. How, you know, humble beginnings, so as a, humble beginnings. Man, it's, first of all, you know, as I was doing some research, man, like I thought, I thought, I'm like, you know what? My man's probably getting a little check here and there from the score running the segment. But then I saw that it said internship and I'm like, okay, not really any money's coming in, man. What kept you motivated to continue doing this, man, and to continue moving forward, especially at that time where you're sharing a a place here, <laughs> you're, you're on, you're on yeah. the futon, you know what I'm saying? And, 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 and there's probably people saying, man, you're wasting no, your no. time. No, no, no. Well, I mean, maybe for my mom, I mean, we, we, our parents, we, we have Caribbean parents. So, and they, and anybody listening to this, who's, who's a child of an immigrant, (laughs) like they always want us to pursue, pursue academic, uh, careers, you know, law, dentistry, medicine, finance, business. I'm over here in the arts. You're over there in athletics. Um, you know, and my dad's Jamaican, your parents are Jamaican. There weren't a lot of hugs and I love yous and high fives. Like the love language was licks, bro. That was our (laughs) love language. Um, and receiving not, and definitely not talking back because the licks would just come furiously and there's nothing you could do about it. Do you want to live here or not? You do? Okay. You're about to take these licks from this belt that I just jostled off of his hanger in the closet to strike fear in your heart. So your heartbeat jumps up to 170 beats per mission per minute. Then I'm going to give you about 15 lashes so that when you're crying, your heart rate actually elevates even closer to 200 beats per mission per minute in that fat chest of yours. Anyway, Caribbean man, it's funny. It's funny you say that, man, because, you know, (laughs) I'm sure your parents have said, I know my mom has said a lot too. She always says, look, I brought you in this world. Yeah. I can take you out of it any second. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, man. The, 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 the line but, uh, from uh, the Cosby show. And, I, you know, I, I, I say that knowing that Bill Cosby is erased, but at a time before all that stuff, like the Cosby show was, was hugely influential in my life. And he had another line with Theo. He's like, I, I made you, I could make another one just like you. And that was, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there. Oh, that was good, man. But Cab, man, who was your first sports interview, man? Who was who who was that first person? How did that go? Uh, I think it was Wade. B- I think it was so Wade Belak, who is no longer with us. God bless the dead. He used to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Darcy Tucker was another Toronto Maple Leaf, and then I think I did a Leafs and Raptors. Like I had Leafs and Raptors in my first segment, the first time I got to interview athletes. So it was Morris Peterson and I think the junkyard dog who were like JYD was mm. awesome because he loved the media. He was charming. He had great energy. So it was amazing for me to, to, to speak with him. And Mo Pete was awesome too. Mo Pete was a, a little bit younger than me and, uh, um, and he was cool and Wade Belak and Darcy Tucker also. So, and I, I think the first bit was about what you, what do you eat before a game? And they're like, it basically at that in that era was just carb loading guys. were eating like full plates of pasta before playing a game for two hours. I don't know how their bellies dealt with it, but I, I know they had a bunch of energy, but um, yeah, uh, that was, I believe that. And that was, I want to say was probably like January or February of 2002. It took me a little bit of time to get to athletes. Mostly it was just like people at on college campuses of so George Brown, Humber, York University, U of T, Ryerson, Sheridan College. Like I would, I would just bounce around to find people my own age to harass because I felt more comfortable there. Gabby, mm. give me your, give me your top three people that you looked forward to interviewing, and probably your favorite ones. But also share with me a moment that that why those three were special, man. Because something must have had to happen in there. I know Kobe is one yes. that's close to your heart, but. Who are the others? He's definitely number one. I look forward. I look forward to talking to man, everyone, bro. Um, but the ones that that um, that had a special place in my heart were a mix of their excellence in their sport. Because I'm like, oh, I get to talk to so and so who's at the top of their game. So Kobe was one. Pedro Martinez of the Boston Red Sox was another. Mm-hmm. And then um, 
let's see in hockey because I I didn't really get to like a big big star until like oh five, and then in oh five, oh and and the, I'll explain the timeline. Um, oh one to oh two, I did cabbie on the street of the score, and then oh two to oh five, I left to work on a magazine show called NBA XL. It was uh, a basketball show. And then I'd also work on a show called J zone, another magazine show uh, about baseball. Um, so it was basketball and baseball were the guys. And I, 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 okay. But before another hockey dude, Kevin Garnett was someone who showed a lot of love early. And he was like at the height of the game in the NBA. I mean, they never won a title or didn't win a title until 2008. But when I first met him in 04, the old three, he was so cool. And then 04 and 05, I met him again. It was, it was just awesome. So, um, but later on, it's like once I developed a connection with a dude, so David Ortiz or Jose Bautista, or, you know, in football, it was Aaron Rodgers, or um, even some of the CFL dudes were amazing. Like Damon Allen was so much fun to interview because he just was down for whatever. Um, uh, but in hockey, it was like, uh, Ovechkin, it was Mike Richards. It was Ryan Getzlaff. It was even interviewing Sidney Crosby, trying to get Sidney Crosby to laugh. He was so stoic was a challenge, but I looked forward to that challenge. I'm like, I'm going to get this guy this time. Um, so, so there were many people, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't have that condensed to three. So yeah. So three was, was Kobe, Pedro, Kevin Garnett. And then it changed over time as I developed closer relationships to some, some players and, or relationships where they allowed themselves, they lowered their guards even more to allow me to be even sillier. It's funny, man, because I think um, <laughs> it, it it's very hard to get someone, especially someone that you don't know, um, for them to lower the guard and to actually allow real conversation to flow. So you can kind of get to know them a little bit, man. Um, this is a segue to my next question. But I remember in 2012, man, I was 19, 20 years old, just got to the Olympic Games. It was in London. And I remember... Um, you know, the fellas saw, saw Kobe and they saw LeBron, and, you know, at the beginning of the camp. After they played the game in Spain, right, some of us skipped out on the closing ceremony because, you know, it's, 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 it's cool, but, you know, nothing happens right. at the closing ceremony until after, right? So we're going back and we're in the game room. We're walking to the game room. And <laughs> it's me, Aaron, and Gavin and somebody else. And Aaron goes, man, I got to go over there and get a, uh, get an autograph from LeBron. I said, wait a minute, man. You got to read the room. He was like, what do you mean? I said, man, they're playing pool. They got right. the hoodies up. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't something. They're not looking to talk to people. They just want to hang out and play. He said, nah, man, you tripping, bro. I'm like, okay, man, but don't get upset if he doesn't give you what you want. So he goes over there. Says LeBron, man, I'm a big fan, blah, 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 man. Do you mind if I get your autograph? <laughs> and LeBron said, uh, Man, I'm just I'm just trying to play cool, man. I'm just trying to play cool. Man, that hurts, bro. And 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 Aaron comes back, and it was like he was so defeated. I didn't know if he was gonna recover from it, Cap. I did not know if he was gonna. This is Aaron's a Aaron's a basketball guy, right? Big Toronto guy. How did you handle that situation the way how you did it because one of the things that i've always respected about you cabby is you are who you are and you when the cameras came on you didn't shy away from how you approach certain things and from yourself and i always respected that because especially as a black man in this industry you don't really see too many people doing it the way that you do it there'd be some times where you would come you'd wear a hat backwards you would bring props in you'd bring this and that and i'm just like man that is a dude who has found something that he's holding on to and he's not compromising. Nice. Uh, Some people will oh say yeah, no, the for sure. <laughs> Definitely was. <laughs> but but, <laughs> but for those listening, man, because I think it's important, man, what gave you the confidence to approach those guys like that authentically yourself, man? I gotta say, I've been in that situation with Aaron. I'm, I haven't asked anybody for an autograph before. But I've I've asked people for interviews and I've been I've been denied many times and it never feels good. The first time or the one thousandth time, 
it never feels good. But I had, I always thought of like from a baseball perspective, like you, if you fail 70% of the time in the game of baseball, you're still going to the hall of fame batting 300. So, mm. uh, rejection sucks, but I, you have to get used to it when you work in the media. Cause it, it took me a while to really understand that like, and, and, and not take this personally. This was something that I, I had to evolve my thinking. Uh, they, like you guys, you athletes are just regular people. And you have, sometimes you're in great moods. Sometimes you're playful. Sometimes you don't want to be bothered. Sometimes you're just overwhelmed by media and other commitments. And as someone in the media, I have no idea what's going on in your life. Like I just want... And also, people want stuff from you all the time. And whether it's mm-hmm. time or whether it's money, it's one of the two. Um, appearance here or blah, blah, blah there. Um, so just as someone who's asking for their time with with nothing really in return, it's not like, I, I mean, I can do a, a funny segment, but I don't know if you're going to see value in that. I... Uh, it was it was definitely hard at first. You know you know who taught me this? Vince Carter taught me this lesson. There was and I'll tell you this story real quick. I was at his nightclub inside mid two thousands. Vince and I had done many interviews, and I thought because of our camaraderie on camera, I thought that we were friends off camera. So one night at his club, he was dancing with a girl and locked in, and I was like, "Yo, Vince, Vince!" And I kept hitting him to get his attention, and then he just completely ignored me. And, but it was important for me to learn that because a, why am I interrupting this dude when he's just trying to run a flex and, you know, have a a new friend. Um, but two, it's like, (laughs) I realized that, Hey, despite the, yeah, the way that we are on camera, isn't the necessarily the way we are in real, in the real world. And it was, and I learned it when Mm. I was 25, it hurt, but it was important. So that then, then I tempered my expectations in future interactions with people in the public. So I didn't, I would be a head nod. There are certain guys I'll go up to and just give a dap and just keep it moving unless we have more of an established relationship and then we can extend the conversation. How's the fam? Yo, how's your ankle? Or like, yo, have you seen this documentary? It's wild. You should watch it when you're on the road. Things of that nature. So then as far as like having confidence to be, I just wanted to be, I just wanted to stand out a key. And I knew that bringing props into interviews was just going to, it was going to be a different experience for the athlete. And if they enjoyed that experience, then hopefully they'll say yes. The next time I come calling or I send an email, Hey, do you have five minutes for, for this fat reporter from Toronto? So I'm, you know, I'm a people pleaser. And once you put yourself in front of the camera, you're asking people to like you. And then it's, I know it's so self-absorbed, but you can't, even Howard Stern, who probably doesn't, who probably go, you know, acts like he doesn't care what people think about him. He definitely is aware of, of how people see him and wants to be liked. Once you get on TV um, and you're in the media, you want to be liked. You can't, you know, if you're an athlete, could be even athletes enjoy the adoration from their fans because it's it's seductive and it's like it's almost kind of a validation of their talent in a weird way. I'm sure we could, I could, someone could unpack that. Um, but I wanted to be different, and I was committed to being different. And I learned early on that like nobody cares about the process. Sorry, nobody cares about your process. They care about their own, but nobody cares about how hard it is for you to do something. Nobody cares. So don't complain about it. Just can continue grinding. And then hopefully you'll find your, some wins along the way, but nobody cares, bro. Like somebody, you, you have a colleague show up in the office or whatever and tell you about like, tell you a 35 minute story about how terrible of a day they're having. Nobody cares. It's like, yo, man, can, are you going to finish that thing so we can send that to Julie and Bubble and get it approved so we can move on to the? Can you just send me that? Like, let's just get on with this thing, you know? Everybody's got their own mm. issues to deal with, so. Man, nobody cares about your process. Man, Cap, last last two questions before the fun five towards the end, man. And, and, and they're both one and the same, man. 
Tell me your favorite Kobe story. I know he was dear to you, man. So tell me one of your favorite Kobe, Kobe stories. And also, tell me about the time you met Mike Tyson, man. Mike Tyson's oh, okay. my well, guy. Man. Thank you for those. Favorite Kobe story was the day I pitched to fly in his helicopter. And I say that and with full acknowledgement of the way that he left us. Um, I was I got to fly to LA to host a video game event. It was Kobe versus Carmelo. They were playing NBA Live or two, 2009. I'm this Canadian. They found me on YouTube. I had no connection to the organizers of this event other than interviews they saw on YouTube. So that was like a, a weird validation of, wow. of my work. Because being from Toronto and, and in Canada, you're just, you feel kind of insulated to the United States unless you have exceptional talent or you're able to arrive on a huge platform <clears throat> like international competition or you're an artist who yeah. has music that transcends or blows up whether you're you wrote on the record or you're performing the record or you're an actor you're pamela anderson or jim carrey or mike myers you know uh etc um so the anyway after the event we're, we're hanging out having some drinks eating some hors d'oeuvres and I'm like, hey, Cole, uh, for the next interview, um, what do you think about a hot air? No, you know what? What do you think about a helicopter? Can we do a helicopter ride? Like helicopter ride to a game? Goes, yeah, we can do that. I was like, what? We can do that? And I pointed <laughs> at his manager, a guy named Jerry Sawyer, the manager at the time. Jerry, did you hear that? Kobe said yes. And I pointed Allison Bogley, the director of media relations for the LA Lakers. Allison, did you hear that? Kobe said yes to the helicopter. He chuckles. Fast forward. Four months later, we're, uh, you know, we get the green light. Yeah, Kobe can do the helicopter this day. Boom, fly to LA almost immediately. And then, you know, we flew from Santa Ana, California to uh, Long Beach where the Lakers practice facility was. It was about 20 minutes and it was just surreal. It's just Kobe, the pilot, myself, and my producer, my man D. And just the four of us in a tiny red helicopter and then he told us like on game days, he flies or he would fly in a larger helicopter and land on top of a building in downtown LA and then have a car drive him to the Staples Center. He drops 28 points, eight rebounds, four assists in a W over the Magic or the Wizards or whatever team. And then he would either drive home or be driven home or Vanessa would drive them home. So that was... Uh, Hmm. that's one of my fondest memories. And like, I got to spend a couple of days with Kobe because we, we shot that over a couple of days. So that was the practice. And then we shot during the game and after the game. And actually that game hits a game winner over Dwayne Wade with the Miami heat. He hits a bank shot three pointer from the top of the key or from above the break uh, above the three point line. And uh, so that also had him in a great mood. And then we just had great moments from that particular interview. So that's my fondest. And then Mike Tyson, this one was uh, equally surreal because for I'm of a certain age where Mike Tyson, I revered him and he was the baddest man on planet earth for about a four year stretch from like 87 to 91, 92, maybe a five year stretch. So being in his home, Dave and I didn't make any noise. We didn't want to just, we were like two mice <laughs> at the front door and we're looking around and Mike Tyson lives in a modest home. Um, in Henderson, Nevada. I, I, I don't know if he still lives in this particular house, but on flanking his front door are two like uh, awards display cases. They're vertical and they're skinny, almost like, um, like you would see something in a museum, like you would see a mask or um, a vase in like a tall, like an eight feet tall, foot tall, like vertical case. You know what I mean? So yeah. he would have, mm -hmm. he had a couple of those and he had various belts. There was even a bust, like a ceramic Mike Tyson head, but it was like chipping away. I guess it was, it was old, but he had like 10 or 12 belts. It was like, I didn't really realize he had that many belts. And then after 25 minutes, you know, Mike, you know, actually maybe it was longer. Maybe it was 45 minutes. We went outside, we shot the interview by the pool and he had a sandwich before he came out and he was just really calm. And with Mike Tyson, because I think maybe there was some bipolar in his past, but you didn't know which Mike you're going to get. The really playful Mike yeah, that he yeah. would let him 
would, would show the world on Jimmy Kimmel because he had a great in, uh, relationship with Jimmy Kimmel or the, 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 the sour, the, the dour, sullen, um, aggressive Mike Tyson that we've seen in interviews when various reporters would poke and prod him and then he would just react accordingly. Thank the Lord. Yeah. He was playful <laughs> and he was introspective. I asked him about being great. I said, Mike, because you've attained greatness in your life, do you pursue greatness in a different way in the second part of your life? And he's like, not all great men are good men and not all good men can be great men. I was like, hmm. Yeah. Come on, At the no, end of the man. bit, and then I asked him about the, the song, Jay-Z and Kanye's song, Ninjas in Paris. And I was like, you know, once that one, and I actually got to, and this is a career highlight. I actually asked Michael Jordan and Mike Tyson about that song. And then I brought that clip to the producer, Hit Boy. And I'm like, I've spoken to these guys about your song. So it was, it was, there was a surreal like circle that I was able to close there. Obviously can't get to Michael Jordan, uh, my, Michael Jackson, because he's leftist too. But Mike Tyson was like, you know, it was Biggie. Biggie's the one that first dropped that lyric. You know, game six, Tyson, Jordan, Jackson. Sorry, no, what is it? Tyson, Jordan. Oh, geez, what's the line? I can't believe I'm butchering this line. And I've sung this song over a thousand times in my life. Anyway, he... Jackson, Tyson, something, something. I know exactly what you're talking about, but it's not... That's it, that's it. Uh, So at the end of the bit, we had bought like some Vaseline from like a, a nearby CVS or Ralph's. And I had to convince him for like five minutes to put the Vaseline on my face because I wanted to experience what it was like to be a prize fighter. And uh, cause I, I needed some prop for Mike Tyson. Like, you know, actually what I did in this part, I never told anybody, but I brought a Sharpie for him to draw on my face, but he wouldn't draw on my face. So the backup <laughs> plan was the Vaseline and it worked out well too. Cause the Vaseline was like, it just produced a great moment and it just, it was so thick. Like he got a good helping. He even put some behind his ear, behind my ears. He's like, I'm gonna put it behind your ears in case someone wants to bite your ears. And I didn't, I didn't hear it in the moment. I heard it when I watched it in the edit suite. Um, but it was surreal, man. When you look at Mike Tyson, Akeem, like you see how fighters are mentally taken out of the competition because he, it's like looking into the eyes of a lion. And I've never done that in my life, but that's what I can imagine. That is my proxy for looking into the eyes of a lion is staring into Mike Tyson's eyes as I'm trying to be an active listener, but also having a little bit of fear. I'm like, man, I don't want to, I don't want to like disrupt this guy. I don't want to anger, anger this freaking dude. Cause I like, I will go in that pool with a broken neck or a broken jaw. And I don't know if I'm going to emerge from that pool once he gives me an uppercut. So, um, yeah, those are my, those are two of my, my very precious, uh, experiences in, uh, in the, um, my career. All right, let's get to the fun five. Man. <laughs> man so the last five questions, man, you know, it shouldn't be too hard. It'll be, it'll be, man, answer as long as you would take, man, this, this, this is a gem for me, man. I really appreciate these stories, brother. So question one, man. If you were trapped on the island for a week and you could only bring three things, what would those three things be? Some kind of weapon. So either like a trident or well, we need food. Uh, a satellite phone and then something to make fire. So uh, some kind of like blowtorch. Like matches. Uh, or maybe I'll bring a lighter because matches, they're there's, I feel like the, the shelf life of matches is a lot shorter than a lighter and that, you know, so I think those are the three. I don't know if those are, yeah, those are great answers, but those are the first ones that come to mind. Kevin, give me your Mount Rushmore of journalists and broadcasters, man. Give me top five. Well, Mount Rushmore is only four, my brother. There's only four faces on that. Yeah. So was it four? <laughs> well, I... I no, included, man, you, no, in no. I included okay. you in it. Journalists and broadcasters. Okay. So um, the now this is just my personal list. So um, it is Dan Lebetard, Stephen A. Smith, Tavis Smiley, and Terry Gross. These are, I mean, Stephen A. Smith is a, more of a generalist, but Stephen A. Smith is 
uh, a performance artist on television and and it's you you would be hard pressed to find someone who does television better than Stephen A. Smith. Tavis Smiley is has reached expert level as far as an interviewer, and I've borrowed certain things from Tavis, certain um, phrases that he uses, like he say, "How did you navigate a certain situation?" <clears throat> or he would say, "Help me unpack what you just said." And I, those are just such thoughtful questions, and then it allows your guest to re- uh, to to dive in a little deeper on something they were just talking about. Dan Lebetard, one of the funniest television and radio personalities out there. Again, also an expert level interviewer. And I've borrowed things from Dan Lebetard. He always recognizes little moments. He's like, wait, what was that right there? What was that right mm-hmm. there? Like you were about to smile. What, give me, tell me what that memory is. And so, and I would, I would borrow that. I would find, I would look for those kind of moments that were not, scripted but like oh there's something interesting in the way that you answered this question let's explore that uh and then terry gross is an iconic interviewer on npr she's been working on npr for i want to say 30 years she has a podcast or show called fresh air and she's absolutely the best in the business thank you for that question man i know you're a big music guy yes sir music mondays give me your top five artists of all time kevin Drake, Kanye, uh, D'Angelo. I, and I, I grunted after Kanye because I'm, I'm separating the artist and the art. It is very <laughs> hard to do. That's hard to do. And, and Michael Jackson. Again, that's the harder one, separating the art from the artist. Man, that's a solid list though, man. Hollywood comes calling, man. They say, you know, Cap, we, 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 we love what you're doing, man. We want to honor you, man. We want to get a what? documentary on your life. Who is oh playing Cavi? Well, if it's a documentary, it's going to be me. But if it's like a movie based on my life, uh, then it's Keenan Thompson yep. from Saturday Night Live. Because we have a similar face. He's <laughs> way funnier than me. Uh, but if he's in the movie, then other, like, because he's a note, he's a star, I think other athletes would be like, you know, I'll be like Vince will agree to be in the movie and Aaron Rodgers might agree to be in the movie. JJ Watt would like these people that I've interviewed before might agree to be in the movie. So yeah, Keenan Thompson, if he's not available, I don't know who, but uh, hopefully he is available in this uh, hypothetical situation and then he would absolutely crush it. Cab, last question, man. Um, you know, with, with, with everything that you've been able to accomplish, man, the sacrifices, the grind, the $100 internship checks, the sleeping on the futon, um, to just being where you are now, man. If if there was one word to describe you, man, what would that one word be and why? Ambitious or obnoxious? I'm a mix mm-hmm. of both. I, I, aspirationally, it would be ambitious, but realistically, it would be obnoxious, I think. <laughs> Great question. That's a hard. I bet with your guess, that's like those last five are are very are are tough um, answers. It was certainly that last one because you have to be real. Like you just I don't know if. Uh... Well, cabman, it's 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 one of those things, man. Where you know, as I've said before at the beginning, man, and th- maybe this is something you'll look back later down the road, man. But your body of work and your consistency throughout the years, man, by being yourself, man, that's the thing that hits me the most with you is, you know, you don't shy away from who you are, right? Most people get into certain stages and they try to be something they're not for the audience, for the money, for this and that. But to me, I've always got the sense of, man, this is something that is purpose led in your life. Even if you weren't getting paid, I feel like you still do it. Now the pay helps, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, man, it's just, again, man, it's love and respect from my end. Because when I look at you, I say, man, that is a person who put purpose first and then the rest came. And that's why your story is so interesting to me, man. I I learned some stuff I had no idea, right? But it was also the fact of like, man, I think too many times, brother, where we don't give people their roses when they're alive. 
we wait till the last minute for something to happen and we, and we, and we say, man, we wish you would have said this. I've started the podcast okay. kind of for that reason on another end, man. I want to celebrate people while they're here, bro. And whether people tell you or not, man, you, you know, you may say obnoxious, you may say, you know, all these other things, man, but you're an inspiration, bro. And, and, and I know I'm not Very the only one that thinks I, that. I really appreciate this conversation and, and thank you for, uh, uh, Thank you for the flowers and thank you for, for being so supportive of my work from time. I'm not, I'm not for everyone. My style is, is very much love or hate. Um, and you know, people will let you know if they, if they, if they're not feeling it. So, um, thank you for feeling it at various times and, 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 um, and showing love and support, man. Appreciate you, Akeem. Yeah. I appreciate your time, man. Thank you, um, sir. It means a lot, thank brother. You. Okay, thank you. I'm sorry that Cap, was so we'll long in my there. answers or whatever, but that was, I really, thank you very much for, oh. for having me on. Let me know when you publish it and I'll, I'll repost and all those things. Will do, man. Thanks again for your time, Cat, man. I'm going to, I know, uh, I know the audience is going to get so. a lot from this one, man. Okay, take care, homie. <laughs> all right, Cat. <Kat. laughs>